Welcome to this week's episode of Graveyard Coffee Talk. We're your hosts, Amanda and Corinne. And uh, guys, my hubris has bitten me in the ass. It has. So first we'll talk about our coffee and then Corinne will tell you the mistakes that have been made today. <laughs> mistakes were made. <laughs> so um, right now I am drinking some decaf coffee from our local coffee shop and roastery Synergos. And um, it's just drip coffee, a little bit of oat milk in it. Nothing fancy. Yup. We we can't be fancy every week for you guys because we're, we're on, a budget. on millennial budgets. We're on a budget. I am. I'm actually double fisting right now. I also have some decaf. Drip brew with some oat milk, probably more oat milk than Amanda put in because I really love oat milk a lot. But I also still have from our last recording session my dirty chai latte from uh, Heine Brothers. Our our last recording session finished about fifteen minutes ago. This isn't. Yeah, I didn't like carry keep it. over. <laughs> I didn't keep it in the fridge waiting, letting it become a haven for bacteria. I did actually. It's only been a few minutes. Yeah. Um, but you know what? That hubris would be par for the course for me. <laughs> so here's the deal, guys. Uh, I was shuffling the Wild Unknown Tarot deck because we do our, our tarot draw, which I'm getting ready to tell you about. And I said, okay, deck, drag me. She said, she said it out loud to the deck and it was listening. Um, and I, guys, I drew the tower. <laughs> so, you know, unexpected upheaval. It's a picture of... A very tall tree being struck by lightning in a couple of different places. There's fire. It's burning. It's bad. Um, yeah. So basically, shit's bad. You did not see this coming. You kind of got hit by a car a little bit. Um, but that's not, again, it's not a bad thing exactly. It's like, okay, shit is awful, but you're going to grow and you're going to learn. And you're going to be a better person for this shit having happened. So I, silver lining, I guess. I guess. Will I learn from this hubris? No. No, I won't. No, I've got over a decade of experience being friends with her that out oh, no. That says she will never learn. I will learn nothing. And be glad of it. Hey Amanda. Amanda, let's uh let's move away from my hubris. What are we talking about today? Alright, so last week we let you know that we had a a little like mini series within our mini series duology episode, <laughs> I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, and we are going to talk about big cat folklore. So this this would be like actual big cats, like lions and tigers and panthers. Oh my! Um, as opposed to little cats, like the domestic kinds. And I did try and argue with Amanda that I should be allowed to include cheetahs in small cats. Because they can't roar. They are technically small. They are considered small cats. They are lesser cats. And I told this to my friend Avery, and they did a deep dive 
on current taxonomy of cheetahs. <laughs> and we got on a voice chat. One day I was doing some mindless work and they were like, let's get on voice chat. And they're just summarizing all of their research to me. And it was really cool. I didn't understand a word of it because I'm an idiot, but it was cool. But I'm not actually talking about cheetahs today either. So it doesn't really matter. I just thought it was funny. And I wanted to share. Amazing. <laughs> okay. So uh, big cats. Amazing. Big cats. So no biology here today. Um, I know that I did that for you guys in folkloric foxes and clever corvids and a little bit you know talking about how domesticated cats hadn't made it to the u.s before columbus with small cats but i don't have that for you today we are gonna dive right into the spooky shit oh boy and i hope you're ready i'm not (laughs) so going back to appalachian folklore because i just love it and we do live in the foothills of appalachia I mean, it's Louisville, so not really. Let me pretend. My dad's family's from Foothills of Appalachia. Oh, yeah. No, I have family from Harlan County. Like, (laughs) I know. Uh, So today I am going to talk about the Wampus Cat. I'm sorry, the what? Which you might know as a D&D 5e monster. Oh, Jesus. Okay. (laughs) But... I'm going to talk about the folklore behind the fiction. Cool, cool, cool. Bring it. All right. So to begin with, early 19th century communities in Appalachia, specifically starting around the Georgia, North Carolina area, Mm -hmm. um, and some early stories also made it up into Tennessee. It didn't get more widespread until a few decades after initial accounts. Okay. Um, But those original... Communities in Appalachia attribute the wampus cat to Native American folklore, specifically from the Cherokee Nation. Okay. Per the alleged legend, a group of men were going on a grueling hunt and decided that women shouldn't be allowed along with them because clearly our weak little lady legs would only slow people down. I love the misogyny already. Right? Please tell me more, Amanda. Uh, So one woman decided that this was straight up bullshit. Good. So she decided to camouflage herself by wearing a cougar pelt and crouching on the ground near the fire when the hunting party stopped to make camp. (laughs) She ends up either snapping a twig or coughing or she makes herself known somehow, Mm -hmm. which alerts the group to her presence. um, Incensed that the woman wouldn't just stay in her place and listen to the men who obviously know better. Uh Uh-huh. They take her back to the village and let the shaman decide her punishment. Okay. The shaman then cursed her to become the creature she wore as a disguise, turning her into the wampus cat. (laughs) Just the name. I can't. A half-human, half-panther creature with an appearance so frightening that anyone who ran into her in the woods would run in fear, keeping her from ever having positive human interaction ever again. Oh, that's really sad, though. Which is like, that's a bit much for someone who just wanted to help you hunt. <sighs> like, it's mean. she just wanted to help. Um, now, you'll perhaps notice uh-huh. that when I started talking about this, I said, per the alleged legend. I did happen to notice that particular word choice. Yes. So I just want to make sure to note that while every source that I found for Wampus Cat folklore, um, which will be in the show notes, mentions that the Wampus Cat comes from Cherokee folklore, I can't find any scholarly evidence that backs that up or any 
native sources that reference it. So it's all, it's all white sources, pretty much. Yes. Uh, and I can't find any references to the wampus cat prior to the 19th century. Interesting. So while there's a possibility that members of the Cherokee Nation spoke with white settlers to explain what people were seeing in the forest, it could also be one of those, how do we make this legend sound more legit? I know, make it native. I, there's a, a tiny part of my heart that also wants it to be like, the natives were... The native, fucking with yeah, people? Yeah, the native folk are like, these dumbass white bitches will believe anything we fucking tell them. Oh my gosh, I would love it if it were that. And so again, it there is a possibility that this is native folklore that i have missed yeah in doing my research but i tried yeah legit really hard to find it so i i do have to know that we're using the word alleged for a reason yes um and there is a non-native origin story as well that you'll hear further up in pennsylvania because it does seem like the wampus cat follows the appalachian mountains love that um And, you know, because where there are women and cats, there must be witches, right? Damn straight. So the story states that there was a spate of livestock thefts in a small Appalachian town. Okay. Uh, No name because the name of the town changes depending on where in the Appalachian region you are. Makes sense. When the story is told. Uh, The people in the town believed that one particular woman, because it's always a woman, Uh was responsible. So they start taking turns spying on her. Mm. And they catch her transforming into a cat and walking towards a barn where uh, and the next day they found out that a piece of livestock was stolen from that barn. It wasn't specified if it was cattle or sheep or a horse. I think that also varies depending on who's telling the story. So the next night they follow her again. She turns into a cat. She starts walking towards a barn. The townsfolk jump her. Rude. I mean, she was stealing livestock. It's fine. She's a cat. That was theft. It's fine. She managed to escape from them, but ended up trapped halfway between human and cat. Oh, that's awkward. And, like, I would like to note that the livestock thefts didn't stop. So, obviously, maybe she was protecting them. So, I mean, they just needed a snack. Messed up her Black Sabbath appointment with our girl boss Satan for no reason. Those bitches. I know. Bitches and hoes. Good lord, sometimes we all just need a girl's night. So true. So true, bestie. (laughs) Please don't hurt me. (laughs) Oh, goodness. But now we'll come to the stories of the sightings because that's the fun stuff. Indeed, yes. Tell me more about the wampus cat. So early and say that name <laughs> just kills me every time. Uh, I don't know you why. will also like to know, and I, I haven't gone too deep into the etymology here, but the wampus cat is the origin for the word cattywampus, for something being not quite right. Yeah, I. You can see the little light bulb going off in my brain, but unfortunately, this is an audio only thing. So, like, <laughs> you, the listener, cannot see this. But the light bulb has gone off. This does Mm -hmm. make sense. Yeah. So early references from the American Dialect Society, which is a society from the late 1800s that aimed to study how language and dialects shifted as you went across the United States. Love that. So like, I want to read everything they've ever written. Pretty much. Uh, But those early references say that the wampus cat was uh, referred to as, quote, a cat heard whining about camps at night or... 
a mythical green-eyed cat having occult powers. Okay. And, quote, an imaginary being, <laughs> which is <laughs> so helpful and specific. Thanks, guys. Um, and, you know, those descriptions vary depending on where in Appalachia you got the story. Yeah. Folklorist Vance Rudolph, who primarily researched folklore around the Ozark Mountains, um, you know, again, down in North Carolina, referred to the wampus cat as, quote, a kind of amphibious panther, which leaps into the water and swims like a colossal mink. So like a jaguar? Because like, them bitches like water. Or a panther. Mountain lions will. Do they swim? I know. They don't love it. But they will. Okay, yeah, because, like, jaguars actually jive with the water. Yes. So do tigers. I know. I love them. They're so, my friends. <laughs> Sorry. Various sightings were reported starting in the 1920s. Okay. Primarily focused around the North Carolina, Georgia area of the Appalachians again. Okay. The sightings usually mention the sighting of a large six-legged cat. Six legs, huh? Mm-hmm. Light tan fur. Which, if you believe the woman trapped halfway b- between human and cat thing, you have the four cat legs and, then, and the two arms. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't like it. <laughs> I just want it to be known that I automatically don't like that. Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. I, I can't change the folklore for I you. I know. I know. I signed up for this. You did. Their scent is described as a cross between a wet dog and a skunk. Oh, God. Yeah. Yuck. And I freaking love this quote from an Arkansas farmer. Okay. Quote, a mountain lion with six legs, four for running, two for fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a good line. Which I think every cat wants. That's, um, (laughs) that that farmer was an incredibly gifted individual. (laughs) And I'm here for it. Right. After these sightings happened, the people in surrounding towns would institute week-long curfews and, you know, a lot of dead livestock would turn up. Yeah. Makes sense. And it should be noted from a skeptic point of view that these sightings and livestock deaths match up with a population boom that both coyotes and jaguarundi had in the area at the time. Ew! Yeah, that would, um... Um, and it is also worth noting that Jaguarundi, while not as massive as the descriptions of a wampus cat would have you think they are, do look kind of mink-like. I can, yeah, I can see that. Uh, so to put into context how wide-ranging the wampus cat is, sightings have been reported from Arkansas and Mississippi all the way up to New York. Okay. In some stories, the cat is a menace, as all cats are. Yep. But Sounds not... Right necessarily a danger to humans and livestock there are stories where it's just a really unnerving looking and sounding creature it's just a really creepy cat yes which honestly seems to be a more modern interpretation okay Um, the further back you go the more dangerous the wampus cat is to your livestock that makes sense sometimes the stories state that the cry of a wampus cat can drive people insane (laughs) And other stories, specifically around Tennessee and Kentucky, state that the cry of a wampus cat is a foretelling of someone's death. Interesting. Which I love because that part of Appalachia was populated heavily by Irish immigrants at the time. So you think a cry heralding someone's death harkens back to a banshee. I like, I like. 
Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if there's any actual connection there um, because right now I don't get paid to research this shit. So, you know, I can't delve as deep as I would like necessarily, yeah. but the, the comparison. Unfortunately we have day jobs, but yeah. the comparison does kind of write itself. Yes. And now we move down to Alabama. I, which traditionally doesn't have wampus cat sightings, but in modern times, it's the sightings have become almost an urban legend. And who boy, does this make me happy. So this is the least plausible explanation for a wampus cat that I've ever heard in my life. Oh, and I love it. I need this. So according to the urban legend, the wampus cat is a result of World War II era government experiments <laughs> to combine human, gray wolf, and mountain lion DNA to create super soldiers who could survive the Eastern Front in winter more easily. <laughs> I know. It makes me so happy. What the fuck? It makes me so happy. And it's it's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. We can't do that with DNA now. Maybe with CRISPR you could do it. No. CRISPR babies. No. It's, it's not. Let me believe, Amanda. I won't. Please. <laughs> but, like, I can't pass up a good government no, conspiracy. It's wonderful. I love it. Yes. And I just love it. And Alabama, are you okay? No. No, they're not. Are any of us okay anymore? No. In the year of our Lord, 2022, no. Yeah, no, not at all. So there are no legends detailing how to kill the wampus cat. Okay. So to the best of our knowledge, there might not be a way. They're immortal. I like it. Though, starting in the 1950s, Stories of wampus cat sightings start mentioning that the cat shies away from religious symbols, mainly Bibles. Of course. And as far as I could tell, you never see more than one wampus cat at a time, which leads credence to either story. Sure. Okay. About it being one woman. Mm-hmm. And I do want to mention as we discussed in the Foxes episode, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the woman-centric notes in these stories about big cats can be traced back to the cries that mountain lions make. Yes. Because um, if you listen to audio clips of a mountain lion roaring, they, that really sharp cry at the end sounds like a woman. Mm. Um, like, genuinely, those are the noises I made when the epidural wore off in labor. Like, that is a sound that can come from a human woman. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's unkind of me. I mean, but it's true. Uh, so to close off my segment, because you guys know I can never cover just one story. Yeah. Uh, I would like to quickly touch base on the concept of phantom cats. All right, all right. And I'm not sure if you're discussing this in any... No, my context won't really include this, but I'm okay. familiar with it because of the book I just threw at you right before we started recording. Well, they're not, it's not a U.S. specific concept. Mm. So phantom cats are large cats such as jaguars, panthers, pumas, etc. found in areas outside of their natural habitat. Yes. And these sightings allegedly happen worldwide. Yes. We're going to focus on some of the U.S. ones. Of course. And... To clarify, to be considered a phantom cat, these sightings can't be things like panthers moving up through the southwest 
<laughs> through the southwestern U.S. into Texas and Arizona or mountain lions reclaiming former habitat. Yeah. Um, you know, it, anything that has actual government agency data backing it up is not a phantom cat. Yes. So phantom cat sightings in the U.S. include mountain lion sightings as far north as Massachusetts, mm-hmm. large feline sightings in Hawaii, hmm. and black panthers in Illinois. Okay. And, you know, there are, of course, the conspiracy theories that these are supernatural creatures. Yeah. Um, But I believe the mundane explanation, which is that people are releasing their illegal exotic pets, either out of fear of law enforcement finding them or out of fear of the animal itself, because wild animals do not good pets make. No, they do not. Uh, So, again, I, I figured we couldn't really do a large cat episode without talking about phantom cat sightings but i think there is a perfectly mundane explanation there which is just yeah the exotic pet trade is fucked up what i think is really interesting is for kentucky specifically sightings of mountain lions are considered phantom cats because kentucky does not acknowledge that that we have them yeah which we do we do this is part of the traditional range yes they were driven out by white settlers but they are coming back. And there's some pretty credible evidence. And I'm not talking like if I saw what I thought was mountain lion, I would not be a credible witness because outside of, you know, seeing them at the zoo, I don't have experience. We're talking people with wildlife training who are like pretty fucking sure that's a mountain lion. And finding their droppings. And that's not as acceptable, actually. Really? You, you really need print, like paw prints, and they need to be very fresh. Um, photographic evidence is also really useful. You see some similar things talking about potential thylacine sightings. Right. In Australia yeah. and Tasmania. It's actually, it's really cool. I'd love to explore more of that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I have a day job. Yep. But that's my segment. Um, you know, the the wampus cat especially, I genuinely think is a way for white settlers to explain mountain lion cries yeah they're they're creepy in a way that is honestly less creepy than thinking that there is an actual mountain lion about <laughs> to eat you yeah like thinking that there is one woman as a supernatural creature wandering through the woods what are the odds she's gonna come across me yeah if there are actual mountain lions near my homestead yeah i remember being out out west and seeing signs like be careful there have been mountain lions spotted in the area they terrify me more than bears honestly that's fair we were we were on pretty high alert we were on pretty high alert the entire time my parents were like okay if we see a mountain lion we'll put the twins on our shoulders i'm like what the hell's gonna happen to me you saved the youngest i'm sorry damn you've had four good years damn (laughs) bitchy all right all right this is my uh my cue to take over um so when we decided on this episode, I actually asked you if you wanted to handle jaguars or not, because right. due to the vagaries of geography, sometimes it does make more sense for you to also cover things in Central and South America. Or Canada. Or Canada. Yeah. And uh, you were kind enough to let me have jaguars. Yes. Um, please note, jaguars are 100% on the list of things I want to pet that will kill me. I mean, Same. I went through a huge phase as a child where I was convinced I was going to have a pet jaguar. I love that. Um, So I'm going to dive right in here. 
Jaguars play a key role throughout Mesoamerican cultures, especially for cultures like the Aztec, the Maya, and the Olmec peoples of what is now modern-day Mexico on into the rest of Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where often the ruling class would be very closely associated with jaguars, including wearing jaguar pelts as part of their regalia, or including the name jaguar as part of their ruling name. Okay. It's pretty cool. They were also frequently linked to spiritual leaders. So you've got warriors, you've got kings, you've got priests. Which makes sense mm-hmm. if you want to invoke the most powerful uh, most powerful thing around you. It's the jaguar. Yes. Um, however, Nicholas Saunders, uh, who is a scholar I found while I was researching, in his article, Predators of Culture, Jaguar Symbolism and Meso- Mesoamerican Elites, notes that relying on older scholarship has some added pitfalls in determining how these different cultures from different time periods viewed jaguars and themselves. Uh, A lot of the scholarship used a very Eurocentric view regarding big cats. Um, You know, in Europe, you see tigers, you see lions, and they are always associated with royalty. So European scholars are like, got it. Jaguar, same basic principle. Mm. Um, However... They also drew from presumptions that the Olmec culture was kind of like a mother culture from whence Maya and Aztec culture developed uh, directly and drew all of their beliefs and culture from. And that was a really, really strong academic belief as late as the 90s. Yeah, it's uh, more more contemporary scholarship is very interesting, I will say. Um, that said, there is compelling evidence that the Maya and the Aztec used jaguar iconography in very similar ways, especially with regards to ideal traits for warriors in their society and their association with powerful rulers and powerful spiritual leaders. Gotcha. Um, so as I was perusing the Wikipedia page on Mesoamerican culture, I actually spotted a reference to Olmec were jaguars. And I'm like, well, hey, that's a thing that's going to be really appropriate for this, this episode. Yeah. Um, so where jaguars are depictions of human faces with somewhat feline features to a greater or lesser degree. And so, like, obviously I had to dig into this because, again, this is perfectly appropriate for the show. And it turns out that the theory behind where jaguars is not what I expected. Currently, there is no consensus on what where jaguars are meant to represent. Huh. Because the prevailing theory back in the day, going back to the 1930s, was that these figurines represent individuals born with cognitive and genetic disabilities, such as trisomy 21, which is more frequently known as Down syndrome. Uh, It could also be related to hydrocephalus or even spina bifida, uh, because these features are different. It's presumed that the Almec believed that these children were born as the result of a human and a jaguar having sex, and that these children had some sort of spiritual significance. Mm-hmm. I have linked a few articles. Um, please be aware if you do go and read these. Some of the language is very outdated because these are articles written like 50 years ago, like 1970s. Um, and some of the language is very outdated and honestly kind and unkind and dehumanizing. That is unfortunate. There was some, there's one article in particular where they juxtapose pictures of the Wear Jaguar sculptures with children who have Down syndrome. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's um, it's not great. It's not great. Uh, however, I did actually link another relatively old article from the 60s or 70s that completely refutes these other theories. 
Uh, it does still use the outdated, unkind, and dehumanizing language. But it still posits instead that these were jaguars or jaguar children statues are just statues of kids. Um, they talk about how, you know, the the unfortunate term used at that time period for some of the features that are common with children with Down syndrome was mongoloid eyes because of the epicanthic fold. Right. Um, and this scholar points out, well, duh, they're going to have an epicanthic fold. These are people who migrated down from the Bering Strait. Think about what the people who are native to this area look like and why you might see these similar features up to the modern day descendants who still live in the area. Like, let's get it together, y'all. Um, so yeah, ultimately, where jaguars of the Olmec culture are just a big shrug. You know, I feel like that's a lot of folklore once we tear apart the colonizer explanations for it. If we don't have surviving sources from the peoples who actually made or believed things. It's also compounded because of some of the translations done by scholars back further long ago. So, like, when the Spaniards first rolled up and started fucking with the Aztecs, you know, they could directly translate between Aztec language and Spanish. But they would kind of be like, oh, well, I know better. So, for example, you know the animal, the ocelot? Mm -hmm. That's actually based on the Nahal word for jaguar. Because there was the word for jaguar and the word for ocelot. And the Spaniards decided that they were both referring to the smaller creature. And that's why that's where we get the modern day word ocelot. Sure, Jan. Well, <laughs> it's fucked up, but there it is. I mean, no, it's, you yeah. are stating history. I just. Yeah. Every time I think I can't be more disappointed with conquistadors. Yeah, they just are Something like, else comes up. It's a whole hot mess. Um, so, yeah, I kind of went off piste. With this research, but, like, that's just what happens when you start Googling. Oh, yeah. Um, and a, one final note on this particular bit of my research is that I found a reference to something called a Maya Jaguar drum, which is a really, really cool bit of ethnomusicology. So way back in the day in what is now modern-day Guatemala – they found a piece of, I think it was like a vase or another piece of pottery with a painting of three individuals, one of whom was playing a very unique looking instrument. And ethnomusicologists looked at it and said, I think I can make one of those. Uh-huh. So um, basically what it is, is two sticks rubbed together. One of the sticks is connected by a string to a drum. Now, keep in mind, this is the only example of a stringed instrument we have in um, any of the Americas prior to European contact. Interesting. It's also an example of a friction drum, which didn't exist in the Americas until uh, post-European contact. So what they would do is you would rub the sticks together. The sound is going to travel down the string. The drum is an amplifier. And it sounds almost identical to the growl of a jaguar. 
There, oh, that's cool. There's a video. Um, I made my mom watch it because, again, my parents are captive audience. Mm-hmm. And my mom's sitting there and she literally just drops my phone. She goes, oh, that's so fucking cool. <laughs> um, so it's just it's so cool because you have some Mayan musician who's like, huh, I wonder, and invents this amazing instrument that modern day scholars have been able to recreate. See, this this episode is such mood whiplash. <laughs> right? On one hand, I'm like, ugh, people are the worst. And on the other hand, I'm like, humans are so dang cool and resourceful. But when I watched this video, I was in awe. I'm like, this is this is the coolest thing. And I, I need to double check my notes because I think I linked to an article written by one of the ethnomusicologists who worked on recreating the instrument itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the video that's posted, it's like a four minute video. I'm going to make you watch it as soon as we're done recording. Hells yes, you are. And the link will be in the notes, guys, because, oh my God, it's so cool. It's so cool. And, uh, I'm, I have a little bit more, but I'm actually going to wrap it up here to kind of keep our timing under control. Uh, just know guys, I was going to actually talk about tigers because I do love a good charismatic megafauna. And also my mom got to fucking pet one before I was born, and I'm still salty about this fact to this day. Uh, And for context, my mother was the head of PR at the zoo prior to leaving work to raise me and my sisters. My mom got to do a lot of really cool shit, and I'm still bitter about it. I also love our zoo. It's a good one. It's a good one. But yeah, that's that's my segment. Amazing. Uh, We'll almost certainly have to revisit this. Yeah. Topic. Guys, I just understand that if we've covered a topic, we will probably revisit it at some point in the future because we're both getting better at actually doing the research. What? And that sounds fake. There's there's just so much that we can't cover in a 35 minute episode. So true. So true. Um, but I think that's everything. Yeah. Uh, This was a fun one. This was a fun one. I was really excited to record this. I've been bursting to tell you about the Maya Jaguar drum since I found that video. I just love that. Again, humans are, gosh, we are just the worst and also the most inspiring creatures on this planet. It's, It's, yeah. Oh, it's It's, wild. It's a good reminder. It's it's like that Tolkien quote. There's some good in this world that's worth fighting for. Mm Mm-hmm. I needed that this week. Hell yeah. All right. Well, sweet dreams and caffeinated nightmares, everyone. Good night. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by Seanan McGuire. Copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at graveyardcoffeetalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at Graveyard Coffee Talk Pod or on Twitter at Talk Graveyard. About three years later, the storm is coming. They say she's out there on the hill. They say she's looking for a promise. So long dead, but she's 16 still. Yeah, she never grew up, and she never.